Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 43 and we have Anthony Jupp joining the show. Juppy started out as a bookmaker's clerk before moving to the UK to work with Sporting Index and their innovative spread betting product. Upon returning to Australia, Juppy spent time at Sportsbet before switching to the betting side and now focuses his time on niche sports betting markets. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Anthony Jump. Today I'm joined by Anthony Jupp. Anthony, thank you very much for coming on. No worries, Jake. Absolute pleasure, mate. Privilege. So, Juppy, take us through sort of your first experiences with betting. Um, I got into it very young, probably when I was about eight or nine. My dad was, he wasn't fully immersed in it, but he would bet occasionally, but he was very good at it. I found that out later on when I started bookmaking. So he sort of got me involved. I had um, a sister that trained a few greyhounds. Grew up in Melbourne where it was just a sportsman town. So um, fell in love with all sports and sort of watching World of Sport there on Sunday mornings. They'd always have a review of the the races from the day before and and watch that. And probably my earliest memories watching Kingston Town when he's third Cox Plate. So, yeah, I got into it quite young and um, it sort of flowed on from there. So was your dad your biggest influence in those early days? Yeah, dad was an influence in, in well, many ways, my late father now. Um, he, he, I spent a lot of time with him growing up. So the, the sort of two things sort of from the two aspects that I took away from that I really learned from dad was learning how to perceive value, which I think is probably one of the most critical skills that any punter can have. Um, and it's, when any sort of younger people or novices sort of come into it, it's one of the first things I sort of teach them how to do. And and from that, the art of the deal, making sure you get, you're getting what you perceive as value and then getting it at the right price. And the other thing that he taught me was just sort of patience. Like he might not have a bet for two or three months, but when he did, then he'd, he'd wait for the one that he'd been waiting for and then he'd have a real crack at it. So they were the two things that I really learned from my father. And then I was, I was really lucky um, when I was about – I was 18. I'd, I was in my final year of high school. Um, my youngest brother was at kindergarten at that stage and my mum was on the committee of the local kindergarten and um, one of the other ladies on the committee, her husband was um, an on-course bookmaker um, at the picnics. So he was looking for staff at the time and he gave me a start and I started clerking on course when I was 18. Most people that know you on Twitter will be aware of that name, that's for sure. So, perceived value. How did how did your dad, sort of when you were younger, instill that idea in you? And I guess from a betting perspective, you mentioned the patience involved as well. But with regards to value, I don't know too many people in their sort of teenage years who are thinking about betting from that perspective. So, were you aware back then what he was trying to instill? Or do you just know now that some of those lessons were really valuable? Uh, it's it's probably easy with hindsight, um, Jake. But like I I spent uh, as I said a lot of time with my father. And it didn't matter whether it was buying. We we've always had sort of a farming background. So whether it was buying or selling livestock, or through the business we have in Melbourne with the um, the trucking company, whether it was buying us buying or selling equipment for that. Like even with sort of real estate and whatnot, he could look at something and reasonably quickly get an a reasonably good idea of what price something is worth and then work on getting the deal in your favour. So that's something that I 
sort of had instilled in me by him, and that's something that I've worked on with my craft. And it's what I, I sort of say to um, to anyone who's sort of getting into it. It's like a good example. You can look at whether it's a sporting event or a, the price of a horse, and you go, okay, well, am I happy to back this team at minus ten and a half? You go, well, no. But am I happy to? So, would you be happy to back the plus side? Yes. Well, what price would I need to back it? Well, then, if that's the case, it might be, say, seven and a half. And would you back the plus? No. So the answer is normally somewhere around the middle there. So once the quicker you can get to that middle ground and find where the answer probably should be, the quicker you'll be able to assess the value of it and and then avail yourself to that value. So you're betting you're betting numbers and not teams, essentially. In, in those sort of in those sort of um, environments, yeah, it was. You can often tell, especially, and that's another skill that you get over time is if you put the time and effort in is if you watch the markets, you do get a bit of a feel about which way they're going to move and then if that, that helps you grab the, the, the value as well. So it was those sort of things that he sort of um, instilled in me. Like I can remember going to like the sheep sales and him buying a pen of lambs for 42 dollars a head or something and then he'd sell them the next week for 48 dollars a head and you just think well how, how on earth did he know that that was going to go up like that but it was just that was sort of how he he the skill that he had in just learning how things sort of ebbed and flowed so I, I was very lucky that i was able to pick up a lot of that from him and what about the virtue of patience did you carry that forward into your current betting life and i guess how you approach placing bets I've got better now, but um, no, when I first started out, like patience definitely is a virtue and it's just waiting for the right opportunities to come along and that's probably one thing that that the, the sort of novice punter or the younger people coming in that, that don't have that grounding, they try and rush things, they try and force things and sometimes you still lapse into it every now and again, but you just get much, much better at it. Like you will let a particular match go or a particular situation go just because it doesn't quite represent enough value to make it worthwhile getting involved in. Like I, I muck around with, well, not muck around, like I bet on a lot of minor sports and often these seasons aren't particularly long. So you, you've just got to try and temper with trying to get the maximum out of the season with actually I need to let this opportunity go because it's, there's no real value there or it's very marginal. So what about the, the bookmaking? You mentioned you started out clerking early on. What were some of the things you learned most from that time, you know, standing up at the racetrack and, and essentially taking bets? So this was sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s when I first started on course. And for lack of a better term, it was sort of, it was the beginning of the end in a lot of ways, but it was still, it was still vibrant on the course. There were still lots of book, bookmakers there. There were still any number of punters, and the the picnic scene, the picnic racing scene here in Victoria has still gets a crowd to most meetings where some of the other meetings you go to, there's just hardly anyone there. So it was a really good environment. You saw a lot of very new punters, and there was a handful of sort of shrewd punters that you learned to watch. A lot of it was also learning what not to do. So learning what people who you knew were just going to lose their money, what they were doing and trying to avoid that. And also I was lucky with the bosses that I worked for. I worked for uh, three or four different bookmakers during – I was probably clerked on course for – it was about eight or nine years before I moved. Um, I worked for three or four different bosses, all who had different styles. There were two there that were very good form analysis, another one that was a very good figures bookmaker – and then another one who was a very good relationship builder, he would happily accommodate the guys that would bet bigger. He'd build bigger books than probably the, the other three. He'd probably take slightly more risk, but he was just sort of – he probably his strengths weren't really in the pricing side of it. So it, it was a really, really good grounding for the time that I was uh, – for the time that I was on course and then um, about the mid-2000s, I um, wanted to get into the industry full-time. So probably took 
the biggest calculated risk of my life just about. I packed packed everything up, put what I didn't need in storage, took my new wife to uh, London, and we spent nearly five years over there where I worked. Um, my first job I got was answering the phone for the Sporting Index and worked my way up through the ranks there. And That was a really, really interesting time because um, they're not your traditional bookmaker. They bet on... Um, what they call spreads or uh, or indexes, which means that the the easiest way to to sort of describe it is the more right you are, the more you win, and the more wrong you are, the more you lose. So if the line is, say, on an NFL game, just with a narrow spread, two and a half, three and a half, so if you buy a team to win at three and a half and they win by six, you win two and a half times your stake, but if they lose by three, then you would do six and a half times your stake. So... It was a really, a really good grounding working there because there was a, a, a great bunch of really, really sharp-minded people there, and with them being two-way markets, so you could both buy and sell. You had to get your pricing much more correct than what you would in the traditional fixed odds markets, where if you weren't sure, you just put up a little bit higher percentage, kept the limits down. Whereas with the spread markets, they were two-way markets, so it, it really did help hone my skills. So is that riskier than typical bookmaking from your perspective? Obviously with, you know, poker where the house just takes a, a rake, there's, you know, no risk in that. When they're bookmaking, they can alter the percentages. I know a lot of bookmakers now, uh, or certainly here in the US, they'll talk about, you know, 5 to 7% margins. Sometimes in Europe it's a bit higher on sports and it's it's not no risk, but you can try and balance as much as you can and, and offset some of your liability as you go. For something like Sporting Index... Was that a riskier proposition with, I guess, more high risk, high reward? There is definitely more risk involved, both for the punter and the bookmaker. The bookmaker's got the advantage in, in that the spread's normally wide enough where if you actually converted it to a fixed odds price, there's a, quite a bit of margin in it. And you were then relying heavily on the skills of the trader to make sure that that price was around about where it should be. And then, as you say, you try and get balanced action where there's both buyers and sellers in the market and you try and then hope that it falls in the middle. But um, it didn't happen very often. You could have some big wins. You could have some big losses. Um, it's It was a very um, – they were also heavily involved in in-play too, So and especially on some of the more volatile sports like spread betting works really well on a game like cricket where – the runs essentially can make up the total runs for an innings can make up sort of either it can make up easily a hundred either side of the um, of the spread. So there were some that were particularly volatile, some that weren't volatile. Like the NFL's somewhat volatile, but it's not too bad. Normally you'll only finish it'd be rare to finish ten points sort of either side of the spread. So yeah, it was it, that was a great grounding and. Um, the other thing that they were heavily into, and this was in the early, uh, sort of the mid-2000s, where they were big on building um, data models as well for the for the traders to use. They were really at the forefront. It was those guys in Bet365 at the time that were really pushing that. So I learned a lot from using those models as well. So what was their product on soccer, for example, where it's very low scoring? What tends to happen then on soccer is there's not as much volatility, but just it just means the stake size of the punter is much bigger. So they would bet sort of supremacy or total goals and they might set the goals at one one to one and a quarter. So if you thought there was two goals, you'd buy. If you thought there'd be if you thought there'd be none, you'd sell. But what you might ha- you might only buy, say, the the total runs in an innings for maybe a pound or two pounds, because it that could work out to be a, a two or three hundred pound swing. You might buy the goals in the soccer for 100 or 150 pounds to give you the same sort of level of, of volatility and, and movement and potential profit. So what t- what type of sort of active managing of risk or the, on the trading side were you doing when it was something like cricket where I'm sure the markets are probably set around, I don't know, 250, 300 sort of area and then you can have 500 runs pretty easily. Are you looking at that each over? Or are you looking at it every few hours? How did you approach it? Yeah, um, you would just try and move that. You had to try and anticipate the way the market and the match would move in play 
to just try and get ahead of wherever it was going to be. And you had to either call it down or call it up as you saw fit if you felt that was the way that the, the market was going to head. Like if after you've watched a couple of overs and there hadn't been a wicket or and they've been scoring reasonably easily, well, then you knew that you just had to move your, your run bases up a fair bit more aggressively than what you than what you'd initially thought, but um, sometimes that could could get you into trouble too. So it's um, it, it was a it's, a it's a fine art that one, and the guys that I've that I know that are still doing it and have done it for a long time, I've just got so much admiration for that, those guys because it's such a difficult task. Were they sort of found in the stock market arena more so than the sports betting area, or was it a mix? I would say. A lot of them came from the what they call in London the city. They they had come from that the sort of sh- um, the share trading sort of background because that was sort of the initial target audience for the um, f- for the firm. It was like getting some of those city traders to get them to bet on sports in a way that they were familiar and comfortable with. So there was quite a few of those guys, and then there was then there was the mixture of the guys that had come through either traditional fixed odds or were just sort of almost experts in their particular sport. And that was back in a time where each sport would have specific traders for that particular sport. Like I was a bit of an all-rounder. I sort of did um, US sport and sort of some of the Australian stuff where there were guys that just did rugby union, just did rugby league, just did La Liga, and there were guys that might just do Irish racing. So, yeah, it was – they sort of had the. They were lucky they had the resources to be able to do that, but you needed those resources to be able to do it properly. And did it successfully attract those type of, uh, for want of a better term, Wall Street guys to come and bet on you know the popular UK sports or even US sports and, and other sports around the world? Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, there was always a core group of of guys from the city that were betting with them, and they were always the foundation of the business. So yeah, and it's still going now, and they're still going strong. So. Yeah, they've they've got their, they've carved out their little niche in a really competitive market over there in the UK with nowhere near the biggest marketing budget the world's ever seen. Have you read Joe Peters' book on betting on baseball by any chance? Yes, but that would have been back then about ten years ago. He has a chapter on what he was doing internally. I think it was at Goldman or one of those sort of big Wall Street banks, and he had an NFL. Uh, essentially season win total book, essentially what Sporting Index was doing, it sounds like, where he would update them after each game and, and move his lines in a trading-type way that was an interesting read, and that was probably uh, 10 years ago or whatever now. Yeah, and essentially that's what what um, what they do, and the outrights were, were like that. You'd update them after each week or each round of the competition, and you'd also bet match-to-match, and they were also big on we used to have a lot of player props and that sort of stuff as well because the player performances were often – anything that had um, reasonable volatility in it was always a good market to put up. Yeah, no, makes sense. It makes sense. So when the quants came along and the modelling started, what was it like in the beginning? I'm imagining that, you know, for the Wall Street-style traders who are used to, you know, long and shorts and puts and calls and options and that type of stuff – it might not have been as big of a deal, but what was it like in the, the first few months or years when the quants were actively involved in the modelling? So basically the modelling, what we used the modelling for initially was for the in-play stuff because it it's very difficult to try and manage more than a handful, like two or three markets in play if you're doing it manually. So via a model, it was you could then trade, I think on soccer matches, now they're up to about 350 or 400 individual markets. So the the models allowed you to to put all to put your initial basis in, which you would have come up with via looking at the stats and previous betting and all the things that you'd normally do to price up an event, and you'd then pop those into the model, and then the, that would calibrate the rest of the market for you, and then allow you to make changes as it went through. But I would imagine that those models now, compared to what they were when when I was there, would be night and day. So I've actually been very lucky. My cousin worked with me when I was there. He was in the modelling department, so he still mucks around and builds a few models for us now for some of the sports that we do. And um, those guys were just – everyone sort of embraced it because they knew it was going to make everyone's job easier. And I think one thing that they did really well was 
the trading side of it and the quants team shared a floor in the building. So if there was anything wrong or any questions you had, it was easy just to walk around the corner and speak to those guys about it, and they were very receptive. They also had some guys there that were, were pretty decent punters themselves, and I think that helped. So they sort of got where we were coming from and we understood where they were coming from, so we had a really good working relationship. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. And then what did you do once you decided to leave London and head back to Australia? So it was a funny story. I spent four and a half, about four years at Sporting Index. I moved down to Brighton on the south coast and worked for, uh, it was Panbet then, but it's now Marathon Bet. I loved working there. It was a small firm. They, they had a massive um, Russian-facing business. Uh, but my wife never really uh, settled down there and she came home for a wedding and it was about 35 degrees here in Australia. Uh, she arrived back in Brighton to 18 inches of snow uh, slipped on the way home from the railway station, didn't take her bag off and said, pack your bag, we're now moving back home. <laughs> so so we left the UK and moved back here and I was fortunate enough to then get a job at um, Sportsbet. This was during a time, it was a really interesting time. It was, in a lot of ways, it was probably the, one of my favourite parts of my career. I, started, I came back and started managing the Harness and Greyhound books but this was a time when the Tasmanian tote was still going. They were giving attractive rebates. So we would take a lot of – we'd still take bets from the, the winning punters and we'd manage the book accordingly and, and put back into the tote pools where we needed to, to to manage the risk. And there was a lot of really good, really switched-on guys that were working there. This was during – this would have been pre the merger of IAS Sportsbet and before they were taken over by Paddy Power. So, yeah, that was a great time. And then um, the rebates, they sold the Tassie tote and the rebates stopped. So they almost at that stage wound up the Harness and Greyhound department. So I was lucky enough with my experience that I got in the UK to move over and uh, do some of the US sports and trade some of that. So I was at Sportsbet for about three years. So met some wonderful people there and um, it was a really, really fun environment to work in. What was the the risk management culture like? Because all you hear publicly is account restrictions, not letting on get on. There's a lot of talk about sort of minimum minimum bets and and what that should or shouldn't be, or whether or not they're being followed by corporates. Is it as bad as it sounds publicly a lot of the time, or is it that there are a lot of smart people who are willing to take on people and and take on some risk, accept some larger bets and different players' engaging manner rather than shutting down and deferring and trying to defend their book is that is that fair to say or is it like the public sort of sentiment is that they're horrible beasts and everyone who works for these companies are doing a terrible job the answer is probably somewhere in the middle jay it's when i first started there was it, it was a vibrant marketplace like there was betting back going on between the corporates sports bet might back something with the tab um one of the other corporates might back something with sports bet and the money sort of flowed around and then would eventually finish up in in that tote pool for Tasmania because the rebates were attractive so there was a, it sort of went round and round everyone found their level and then what was left over went into there then as the European influence UK European influence came into the market when uh, the Paddy Powers the bet 365s the William Hills of the world and just the migration of not so much, well, people a bit like me that had moved, that had been in the UK and moved back, it just basically came down to a business decision where at that stage it was cheaper to employ a risk department to go through and analyse accounts and determine which accounts were going to be profitable than it was to fund a trading department with the right the right level of intellect um, and give them the tools to actually price things as well as they possibly could to then try and get the best advantage out of it. So that's where that sort of came in. And then I think in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, probably two years, it has swung around a bit the other way. Uh, The minimum bet laws have certainly helped. 
everyone seems to have benefited from it. I haven't heard too many people that have complained about it since it has come in, both on the bookmaking and the punny side. I know it's made the punny side much easier. But it, it seems to have come back where there is there is more of a um, a tolerance for taking some action off the, the better punters. But they have had to be dragged along by Richie and, and everyone who sort of backed Richie up to to get them to where they are now. So it sounds like it's trending upwards for those who are looking to get a, a decent bet down and maybe profitable long-term that they might have a, a better existence moving forward than they might have had in recent years. Definitely on racing, uh, on some of the stuff that I bet on. Um, like I, It's probably the reason why I've said, for lack of a better term, semi-professional. Like I've always had a, a sort of a full-time job along the way and but still put as much time as I could into the betting side of it. It's just that I, if I could get down what I wanted to on the markets that I want to bet on, then I probably could be full-time. But it's just it's just the way the world is. You've just got to be realistic with it. I can't expect the corporates to be putting the same amount of effort into a netball game on a Monday night from New Zealand than I am on Friday night AFL or Monday night NFL. Like there's just much, much more money in those other markets than what there is in some of these markets on our betting. So I understand that the limits are going to be different and you've just got to learn to live with it. You can't complain. It's just no point. Like they're not going to – I've never heard a, heard of an account reopened or <laughs> a stake increased on the back of whinging. So you've just got to just get on with it. So let's jump over to the sports betting you're doing. What sort of suite of, I guess, leagues and tournaments and, and sports do you focus on? The way I've sort of set myself up, Jake, is I'm happy to be a medium to slightly larger size fish in a small pond as opposed to being a small fish in a really big pond. So I um, my year looks like from about October through the summer here in Australia, I bet on the WNBL, the Women's Basketball League. So I sort of immerse myself in that. I I go to as many games as I can. I watch as many games as I can. And, and even just doing that, that gives me an advantage over the, the corporates because I know, I, I know from experience, like it was one of the first markets they gave me when I moved into the sports department at um, Sportsway. It's the most junior traders they'd have would be pricing some of these up. So I, I've made my way through that season. It was a really profitable season this year. I bounced back and then um, I've branched out into the AFLW. That's been quite good. The early part of the season was really good. The latter part of the season, last week or two, hasn't been great, but um, I've worked my way through that. And it's Then I'll roll into um, the Super Netball. We'll be up along shortly in the Queensland Cup Rugby League and then from there we flow into the Minor 10 Cup Rugby Union from um, New Zealand. So they're, they're the sort of sports that I'm sort of aiming at and I'm, I tip a little bit more time into those than probably what the, the market makers do and that gives me sort of my advantage from there. There's no point, uh, I, like I still follow and watch the bigger sports and occasionally bet on them but I also know that my margin is going to be much, much smaller on an NFL, an AFL, an NRL than what it will be on the minor sports. You mentioned before the potentially the junior traders that are covering these. Is that the only reason or the sole reason because of that sort of sweet spot um, in your approach that you pick those type of sports? Yeah, you've just got to sort of pick your mark. Like you, on What I've tried to do through my career is not necessarily be the smartest man in the room but try to surround myself with the smartest people in the room and also then realise who isn't the smartest person in the room. So just through the time constraints that um, – that these corporate bookmakers have, I know they can't put as much time into these smaller markets that they're not going to hold the money on. So I've just got to pick my my mark carefully and I'm, I'm happy to put the time into that. And in this sort of era where there is still 10 or 12 places where you can get something on, um, it just it still makes it worth my while that I can spread it around and um, and get down what I sort of, what I consider is a, a reasonable amount to make it worthwhile. So do you love these sports? A lot of people are passionate about racing. They'll love Aussie rules. You know, they're big NBA or NFL fans and they bet accordingly. Are you in that same boat? Yeah, and a lot of it's grown on me. Like, especially the 
the WNBL. Like I knew nothing about it when I started, and now it's also it's also working really well with having a young family. Like my wife and kids love going now, so they're involved too, which makes it a hell of a lot easier than just sitting in an office watching watching games. And yeah, they have grown on me and. It does help being a sport lover to begin with, but then once you it then gets more enjoyable as it's however deeply you take it. Like if anyone's played fantasy sports, they obviously love that on a they see a different aspect and a different depth in that sport than just the occasional fan that tunes in to cheer for their team. So by putting the time and effort in, it does grow on you. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do feel passionate about those sports. I really enjoy watching them because if it didn't, then this would be a very laborious job. So what's your approach and your strategy on the analysis side, putting aside the betting for a moment, which we'll touch on, but do you focus on these games as you would a, an Aussie rules or an NFL match and you're you know, watching the tape and you're pouring through statistics, you've created a, a model to some extent to feed all that into? Is that a very similar approach as you'd expect from a professional punter focusing on other major sports? Yeah, yeah, very much so. The, the key difference with these sort of lower, slightly lower tier sports is. And it's still it's still the case in some of the biggest sports, uh, especially NBA where the roster's not as big. Um, the injury news is key and knowing who the lineups are going to be because the difference between, the, like the value above replacement in some of these leagues is enormous. So if you can sort of get a feel that a certain player is either going to be playing or not playing, you, you're just at a massive advantage Twitter's a great tool for that, following some of the beat writers and whatnot, but also then just keeping abreast of what's hap- happening, watching games, re- uh, checking the box scores, seeing if anyone got injured, seeing if they played limited minutes, those sort of things. It, it's it's not that different to handicapping an AFL or an NBA. It's just you, you're using the same sort of fundamentals. So do you have to collect and curate a lot of the information yourself or is it all out there publicly these days? There's a fair amount of pub, fair amount of it out there publicly, but there is some of the stuff that you sort of that you keep yourself as well. There's some proprietary stuff in there that that you sort of keep to go along to, to feed in. But a lot of it's just, as I said, knowing knowing it a bit better than what the traders do. So, what's your approach to betting on it? Do you? I mean, you probably realise that these are niche sort of sports, and the limits are obviously going to be a lot lower, and you are comfortable with that, but. Do you have a sort of a, a targeted approach when it comes to betting on this? Are you trying to spread out over all games? Are you focusing on sort of key matches? What are some of the things you think about and utilize when, when you're betting on these sports? So I probably, mine's probably reasonably simplistic, Jake. I've just come up with, with my number. So whatever I, I sort of make the game to be, and then if there's enough variance on either side to make it value, probably with the leaning to which team I think should win the game, then that's normally where I'll um, I'll be betting, and and then from there the the real ring craft, the old school sort of betting ring craft comes in with it when where you need to trying to get the maximum amount on the game without really collapsing the price. So you want to you want to be just trying to get yourself on and not send too many ripples through the market. So how many outs legitimately do you have on someone like AFLW or WNBL Super Nepal? Are you talking about a handful of corporates? Are you talking about any exchanges? What, take us through what type of options you have. So if AFLW is a good one. Betfair have it up there, but there's probably limited liquidity. So I do my best there and I'll put up what I think. So the one thing that I've learned with Betfair, um, have been a client of theirs for a long, like I was an early adopter of that platform. Once you sort of, relieve yourself of worrying about getting the top price and just getting a price that you're comfortable with, betting on the exchange becomes a lot easier. So I put up a realistic price and then whatever I get matched there is a bonus. And then I go through – the thing with the corporates is they they have a bad case of FOMO, the fear of missing out. If one corporate's got a particular market up on a particular sport, most of them will then feel the need that they have to carry it because they want punters betting almost exclusively with them. So they feel that if another corporate's offering that market, they feel the need to. So most of the corporates here in um, here in Australia bet on 
bet on that. And then the WNBL Pinnacle's very good. They're very fair, although we're going to have some changes there shortly, I think. Um, so, yeah, you've just got to then do your best with what's available to you. And the other thing that you have to just get your head around is is sometimes you're just not going to be able to get on what you want and you've just got to be happy to cop what you're left with. That's just the nature of the industry. I'm in it to make money. The bookmakers are in it to make money. I understand that. So once you've sort of got your head around that, it becomes much easier. So what about market manipulation in these instances when they are niche uh, offerings, I suppose, niche sports? Do you find you're moving markets when you're legitimately just having a bet? And also could potentially move markets in a way that we, you know people would call market manipulation. Obviously, it's fair game. It's just you know the price might move more swiftly if they see a bet from you on a certain side, knowing that potentially down the line you want to be on the other side. Yeah, that's there's probably there's there can be a little bit of market manipulation that goes happens with markets big and small, and yeah, the prices do move rapidly on the smaller markets when. Educated punters do bet, whether it's me or someone else on those markets. The real good one, the real good times happen when there's a differing opinion in the market. That's when it can get interesting because you can see some wild swings there where it can go back and forth. But generally, it gets knocked in the line reasonably quickly, probably off not too many bets. So, yeah, there is, there is definitely some market manipulation, but that happens on most markets most days. So out of curiosity, what type of limits are we talking about for something like WNBL? So a good a, a good good way to look at it is through the lens of Pinnacle. So I think day before a game, they're normally the limits are normally two twenty to win two hundred. Uh, early day of game, they might be uh, five fifty to win five hundred, and then like hour before tip off, they might be eleven hundred to win a thousand. So. That's sort of what you're looking at. And then the corporates will be slightly less than that as they go through. But so you've just uh, – also a lot of it's about timing and just timing your bet to when you want to make sure you're trying to balance getting the best number with getting the, the most amount on. So that's just always a juggling act and something that you sort of – you're always refining but you never master. So is that market-wide or just for a professional like yourself in this instance? I'd say that would be pretty much across the board purely and simply for the reason that there would be there obviously be more people out there that could potentially have more information or, and more intelligence than what the, the market does there, so they're quicker to move it. Whereas on the AFL or the NFL, everyone's sort of on a bit similar playing field there where it's offset with the handful of guys that do have that sort of that intellect or information, there's going to be a hundred, a thousand times more people that don't, that are still betting into that market. Whereas the hard part with the minor sports is, is there's just not that money on the other side of the ledger to balance out whatever I'm betting. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have an idea of how many professionals or semi-professionals are betting on these type of niche sports? Or is it often that the larger syndicates might have a very small percentage of their time allocated to finding an edge in these niche markets as well? Especially for the smaller and medium size, like guys that make money out of the game, I, there'd be quite a few that would be focusing on some of the minor sports. Like I know, especially over there in the US, Jake, like WNBA is, is a sport that's popular amongst the sort of professional or semi-professional community because they see it as beatable. But those limits are, are less than than what they, they would be on some of the major sports. But it's just normally what it is, the easier the sport is to beat the lower the limits and the harder the sport is to beat, the higher the limits. So it's just trying to find your – carving your little niche somewhere along the way where you're happy and, and you're still making money. So do you share information or talk about what it's like to bet on Super Netball, WNBL, AFLW? Are there enough people you can find a network for to do that? Because it can be very mundane, you know, semi even semi-professionally punting by yourself. Have you found that network? Yeah, I've, I've been blessed during my time, Jake. I'm very lucky to have worked with a lot of really sharp people and I've, wherever I can, I've sought out and met sharp people. So I've got a, a great network of people across many different sort of betting options. And, yeah, just I've got three or four guys that I'd speak to about Super Netball, 
three or four guys that I'd speak to about WNBL, WNBL, a couple of guys on the other sports. And yeah, and it's just, it, it's, it's mutually beneficial for each of us because it means that there's three sets of eyes looking at something rather than one. And it does make it a little bit more social. And yeah, it's, I'm just very lucky that I've, I've got so many of those guys in my life that I can talk to about whether it's, over here today, it's Adelaide Cup Day. Well, I know there's a couple of guys that specialise in South Australia. I could hit them up and they'd probably have a tip or two for me there. Something that I can have a look at later on during the day to pass the time. And then if they wanted anything from me, they know that they can just shoot me a message and I'd be happy to help them out. So you mentioned we spoke a bit before about patience and you mentioned sort of the short seasons for some of these sports. How do you balance? Obviously, you want to turn over enough money to make it worthwhile and maximize your return, but you don't want to just be betting into every market for the sake of it. How do you balance that sort of approach in terms of the turnover versus maximizing return, having the, the short amount of games often? Well, that's where your discipline is really key, Jake. You've just got to, once you've got that set of prices and that's your assessed price, you have to stick to it. Even though you think you, you've found the winner to a particular particular match or a particular outcome, if the value isn't there and that price is very similar to the, what you've marked it, you've just got to learn to let it go. Because if you don't, you're going to be having too many marginal bets across the season. Your turnover will be up, but your profit on turnover will probably be down. So you'd probably rather have a higher profit on turnover and not turnover as much but you're probably taking less risk in, in doing that than what you would be if you're just taking these marginal plays, trying to wring every last cent out of the season. So I, I reckon the last, at least the last couple of years, I've got much, much better at that of not betting in every game, letting stuff go, but still finding the right, right spots to bet. Yeah, it makes sense. I think, you know, younger punters who may not like these sports, what would be your advice to them if, you know, you can carve out your niche in these sports and maybe they're not passionate about super netball, but if they're smart enough, they can find an edge based on sort of your global experience on the bookmaking side, on the betting side, working at somewhere like sporting index, which is different again. Do you have any insights for those younger punters looking to get into the game and may not be able to turn a profit betting on NFL year one or betting into Sydney racing year one? What do you suggest for them? What I'd suggest that for them is Jake is there's, there's many tiers to these sports. So pick whichever sport you're passionate about and which one you love. So take the NFL, for example. If, if you're finding the NFL hard, too hard to beat, drop back, spend a little bit of time, and focus on maybe the CFL, the Canadian Football League. Look, the thing is because there's just not going to be anywhere near the amount of sharp money. They're not spending the same amount of time and effort pricing it up. So if you're happy to put the time and effort into that, then maybe that's maybe that's your niche. And it's the same over here for, for AFL. If, you, if you're struggling with the AFL, spend some time on the VFL or the SANFL or the next level down. Just try there. The, the game's essentially the same, and if you're prepared to put the time and effort into it, you'll definitely get the reward out of it. And especially if you're starting out small, you're probably not starting out with a huge bank, but this is a way that you can reasonably quickly build your bank up. It's that would be my advice is if you if you think that it's it's too hard at the top, come back around. And it's the same as if you're betting on if Sydney racing. Well then, do the form like normally. Well this weekend just gone there. Were, I think there were four meetings at um, in New South Wales that were covered by the bookmakers and the tabs. Well, rather than do the form for um, for Randwick, definitely watch them and keep an eye on them and enjoy them. But do the form for Tung Curry or one of the smaller meetings. It'll be a smaller pool of horses. They'll all have the, the gap between the, the top and the bottom won't be as big. Um, you can get big advantages by knowing who the key jockeys and trainers at those meetings are going to be. That Those stats have much more influence at that level of racing that they do higher up. And they've, they've still got the same limit as what, um, as what say, a Gosford meeting would have on a, on a Thursday. Like, They've still got to bet you to win a thousand at Tun Curry, and they've only got to bet you to win two thousand at Randwick. So there's definitely edges around the market. You don't have to be right in the thick of it. And also, the other key thing is, don't think that you know everything because you just don't. The sooner you get that, just know what you know and just have your opinion. 
and try and stick to that as much as possible, but also realize you don't know everything that's happening. Yeah, no, that's that's good advice. Uh, you mentioned building your bank, and I'm sure a lot of people on the punting side have tried building their bank and gone back down to zero. I'm sure you've seen it on the bookmaking side with different punters probably uh, having a strip out over a you know a week, a month, a year, and, and getting back down to zero. In your experience, or, or what advice do you have for those who may you know have a strip out, may lose their bank and need to start again and recalibrate? What do you what would you say to those people? Well, they're not Robinson Crusoe, that's for sure, Jacob. They're, they're not alone there. I've been, been there a few times <laughs> myself. Um, the first, the thing is, you just can't be too proud. Like where I'm currently betting at now is not where I've bet at my peak, but I have to bet within the sort of limits of what my bank will allow. So therefore, I, if you've got to ratchet down your staking, don't be too proud to do it. You've got to bring your. You, it's all about what your bank will tolerate. You shouldn't be betting more than 5% of your bank on any one bet because you want to stay in the game. The, the thing that I'm most proud of of my time is is that I've been in the game for sort of 20-odd years now and I'm still here because there's been many that have had more idea than me and they've come and gone, but I'm still sort of here just chipping away. And that's what you've sort of got to do. Play the long game. There's no last race or last event. It just keeps flowing on. So just make sure you're not overstaking, ratchet down when it's not going well, and always be reviewing what you're doing. And the key thing for people to starting out is, and I was lucky that I got onto this when I was young, is keep records. Yeah. Um, I've got a Microsoft Access database that I built, that I had built. Uh, that must be at least ten or fifteen years ago now, or ten years ago, I think. So I've got forty and a half thousand bets in here now that go back to two thousand and four. And then I can play with that data. I can see where I win, where I lose, how I've how I've performed on certain in certain situations over that time. It's great for reviewing. It's good for settling too. Um, so it's keep records. Don't just rely on um, on what's in the in the accounts at the end of the week or month or whatever. Actually, treat it as a business. Um, take it seriously, and if you do, you'll be rewarded. So that that would be my advice to anyone who's coming in. Just find your little niche, work hard at it, take it seriously, and if you do, you'll be rewarded. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So before I let you go, I have to ask, you're a, everyone I've spoken to knows who you are. Everyone says you're a networking wizard. Some people aren't as good at networking or reaching out to people that might be able to help and assist them. And if they're focusing on niche sports, it might not be that easy to find you know, experts at WNBL or even if it's you know Melbourne or Sydney racing, they might know the names, but they don't know how to reach out. What would be the best way, do you think? Obviously now people might say Twitter, but... What, what's the best way to get involved with other like-minded people and share ideas and, I guess, build your intellect and competency at a certain you know sport, uh, whether it's on the analysis side or the betting side? There's a few ways. When I first started, it used to be just get to the track. That's where everyone was. Everyone congregated in one spot. But now, yeah, as I say, social media has changed all that. Twitter's great. And the thing is on Twitter, like – the worst thing that can happen is you reach out and you don't get a response. I mean, if that happens, it's, you're not going to finish up in the emergency ward. <laughs> most, pe- most people who are in the game are more than happy to help and they're more than happy to share their ideas. And you might not get the full picture, but you'll at least get, an, you'll get enough out of it to make it worthwhile and to keep going. Just don't be afraid. Like, you'll be surprised if you put some thoughts out there yourself, whether it's on Twitter or you have a blog or – um, the forums have sort of dropped off now. Like sort of eight, nine years ago, the forums were massive and I learned heaps. There was probably one of my favourite websites ever was a site called Punning Ace and there's still probably half a dozen professionals and a couple of guys uh, like Scott Ferguson, who's a friend of mine who you've had on as a previous guest, he was on there. There was there was a good group of us then and like I, I still talk to quite a few of those guys now. There's, there's always people that are, that are willing to help. 
So don't be afraid to reach out. And, yeah, I'm lucky that I've sort of got that personality where I'm pretty outgoing and, and whatnot and I'd like to think that I'm reasonably easy, reasonably easy to get along with. Um, so I've been lucky that I have been able to, to make a lot of those contacts. But a lot of it's just been out of just the worst thing that can happen is that you don't get a response. And at the end of the day, that's not the end of the world. So, yeah, just it's and also just pay attention. Like keep your eyes and your ears open. There's plenty of stuff that you can read or notice or – and if, if you're if you're continually just taking in information, that's that can give you the edge, and it can just be one little thing that might be overlooked in the market. That's the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Juppy, your time is very much appreciated. Before we sign off, what's your Twitter uh, Twitter account so those can who are interested can reach out to you? I'm at at the picnics, and that's a capital A, capital T, capital P. Yeah, from basically where I started from because when I used to talk to everyone, I used to say, well, at the picnics we do this. Well, that's where the sort of the name came from. So, yeah, I'm at, at the picnics on Twitter and you'll find me on Facebook. And if you're here in Victoria, you'll normally see me at some of the uh, the country racetracks. I still do a bit of clerking for another previous guest of yours, Natalie Hinckley. Jake, so, yeah, so I still get to the races and um, I go to the harness racing if there's no sort of galloping action. I still still get to the track reasonably often so yeah just hit me up and in any 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 way you feel so i just want to thank you for having me on jake because it's been this has been such a great series um of podcasts and um as someone who does listen to a lot of podcasts there's a lot of good free content out there i might even tweet that out later just a list of some of the podcasts that i listen to because there's there's a lot of great free information that you can get out there that'll really help you in both your betting and just and your sporting knowledge as well so I appreciate you having me on. No worries at all. I believe Nat said that if anyone found her on course, she would give you a couple of rolls over what she's got on the board. So I'm I'm going to say that that definitely applies to if uh, if someone catches up with you on a racetrack out there anytime soon, they should ask for the same treatment, right? You definitely won't be getting middle toe. You'll be getting well looked after. <laughs> awesome. Juppy, I really appreciate it, mate. It was good fun chatting and something different on those sort of niche sports and, and sports betting in general. So... Once again, uh, thanks for your time and all the very best with the upcoming AFLW, Super Netball and everything else you got going on. No worries, Jack, and thank you, mate. You've done a wonderful job with these. And, and thanks to the guys at Betfair for jumping on board and um, and sponsoring the uh, the pods too. They've, they've done a great job. Absolutely, absolutely. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.